Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics. Uh, and um, we got an action-packed podcast for you. Uh, of course, uh, let's do the introductions. Uh, and we have uh, the two co-hosts, my two co-hosts, Chris Dorides and uh, Ryan Sweet. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. Seems like we've been doing a lot of these podcasts. I, I think yeah. we've been stockpiling podcasts for next week, Christmas week, and New Year's, the week of New Year's, because I don't think we're going to record those two weeks. So we've already done those podcasts. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, uh, we're uh, this one's going to be released today, though, I think, right? Uh, I think I think it's for today. Yeah, good. Yep. And uh, any words of wisdom, guys, before we move on? Anything you uh, like to point out? Chris always has words. Yeah. Always yeah. words. I don't know about it, the wisdom, but... Uh... Definitely okay. looking forward to it. If you if you are um, feeling a deficit, certainly I think Ryan and I'd be happy to come back next week and you know I jump know. on the line I, here. I really <laughs> love these podcasts. I, I, in fact, I would have no problem coming back next week. You know? yeah, they're so much fun. I, I look forward to it every week. Yeah, we're, it is Christmas. Well, I, I it is Christmas weird, Eve. Though. That that that's uh, telling, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we we probably jump on and do it Christmas Eve. <laughs> Hey, well, we have a guest today, uh, Ed, Ed Goulding. Ed, uh, Ed, welcome. Welcome to Thank Inside you. Economics. Good to have you. And, and where are you speaking to us from, Ed? Are you, where are you? Are you in DC? I'm in, I'm in uh, DC area, suburban Virginia, Tyson's Corner. Got it. Uh, Ed, Ed and I go way, way right. back. You know, but I'll have to say that I'm a little embarrassed because I get confused. You were at Freddie, weren't you? You were Correct. Freddie. Freddie Mac, yeah. Yeah. And we got to know each other, it must be 20, 25 years ago now. Yeah. I don't know, something like that. And how long were you at Freddie, uh, Ed? Uh, 23 years. I'm sure you know the number of days and hours, too. Uh, some <laughs> some seem longer than others, but yes, <laughs> the last one's dragged on. Yeah. And, when, and then you went from Freddie to, uh, to where? Did you? Did you, well, go, you you weren't you didn't go directly to FHA, did you? Well, uh, it as you know, it takes forever to get cleared. Uh, so I, I I sat at the Urban Institute uh, for a while. My good friend and our good friend Lori Goodman uh, gave me a seat. So I sat there waiting for the FBI to talk to my neighbors. And once uh, my neighbors uh, gave me the AOK, -okay, I moved over to HUD first as a senior advisor for Secretary Donovan and then for uh head of fha for secretary castro right and you were you you ran fha for at least a couple of years maybe yeah like almost well no about just shy of two years just shy two of years. two years yeah. yeah and what were those two years they were when when, when was that? well again it was sort of uh basically march of uh 2015 to uh, basically new, noon, January 20th, uh, 2017. Something happened at that uh, point. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's oh. right. That happened. Yeah. That which we will not talk about happened. Well, we can talk about it. <laughs> FHA, FHA goes on beyond any administration. It's one of its beauties. Yeah. And then you came back over to urban uh, housing right. finance center and uh you were there for a bit and i think we we might have worked on a paper or two together i think yes and and now you're the executive director of the golob center at uh at mit correct yeah 
Yeah, I. Uh, he was the CEO. I'm sure he's still alive. I'm not sure. No, no. He uh, Ben Golub is the chief risk officer at BlackRock and has been with BlackRock and Larry Fink from really the beginning of uh, of the company. You know, as you know, uh, Larry started off uh, as a mortgage trader uh, many years ago before building BlackRock. But uh, so. Ben, uh, as being one of the early uh, executives at BlackRock, uh, has done quite well and very graciously endowed an existing center about uh, seven years ago at MIT. Ben's a, a double MIT grad, both undergrad and PhD. Are you an MIT grad too? No. You're Princeton. No. You're Princeton, I believe, right? Princeton PhD, correct. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you act like a Princeton grad. Just saying. Uh, ooh, <laughs> those are coming from a coming from a Quaker. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> ooh, yeah. um, I was going to ask something. Uh, oh, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about what the center is up to? You know, what kinds of things you're doing there? Yeah, uh, you know, it's the Center for Finance and Policy. Uh, it's uh, you know, mission is to try to get financial policy to be better, better informed. You know, as you know, MIT is sort of the center of a lot of modern finance. Bob Merton's there as one of our co-directors. And, you know, much of the technology and the tools that are used in the private sector haven't found their way uh, into the public sector. And so it's to really inform and to educate uh, both on the regulatory side but probably more importantly, the government is the largest provider of financial services. Think of Social Security as a retirement service. Think of student loans. And really think of the mortgage market. Uh, is a government, you know, exists because of government policy. Uh, so it's important for the government to understand discounting options, you know, uh, and the like in evaluating how to be more effective in the services that they provide. Uh, we've done, we do annual conferences. We did one on retirement. We did one on housing finance. Uh, our most recent one was on the environment and uh, climate change and the role of financial institutions uh, in that. Uh, a little bit of, you know, is it better to divest or, or uh, engage one of the re different returns. We had a very good uh, discussion, including one that you're probably familiar with from your graduate studies. You know, what's the right social discount rate? Mm -hmm. uh, what do we do about, you know, future generations are not in the market uh, to express their preferences and views. So uh, how do we struggle as a society to decide how to discount the future? Um, on that. So it was a fascinating uh, conference. Uh, we even had a geologist remind us that us, you know, we economists are a little short-sighted of looking at 10-year budgets. He, he looks at millions of years uh, at a time. So, Hey, uh, I, this is a bit of a tangent I, and I, I, I will I we'll come back, but on the discount rate, I've got this kind of pet theory that because interest rates are so low and they've they've been low, feels like they're going to remain low, that that actually makes it uh, more economically viable to consider these longer term costs, like the risks of climate yeah. risk. It kind of brings forward, you know, the the threat here and that, yeah. you know, we should be thinking about this more deeply at this point in time in particular because of the low rate environment. Does that sound right? 
Well, yes. I mean, although one of the speakers said, why stop at zero? I mean, there's just, uh, oh, that's sort of an arbitrary, you know, that's an arbitrary number. Uh, I think the other consensus that, I don't know if it's a consensus, but another theme that came out is these are difficult social policies. Don't look to the market, you know, don't look to the treasury market to answer them. Uh, for better or for worse, you're, you know, you need to look at, uh, you know, democratic uh, consensus mm -hmm. uh, as much as you can look at a market. Uh, but it was very, very well-established economists uh, didn't have any answers, so, which is mm -hmm. maybe not too surprising for our profession, but it, uh, it, it's a tough one on what to do about uh, a climate change and how to, how to quantify the, you know, the future costs. Well, that sounds it. We should definitely have you back for that one, perhaps for another podcast. But this podcast, we are going to focus on housing, housing finance and your expertise and uh, as I mentioned, Chris, Chris uh, is, a, is, a, is a Hauser too. He came from, did you guys ever run across each other? I think Chris was at Fannie. You were a modeler at Fannie, weren't you? Did you ever yeah. run across Ed, uh, Chris? Only by name. I don't Only by name. Ever... <laughs> oh, good, I, I assume. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but there was quite a bit of uh, cross-pollination between the uh, institutions, certainly. So there were definitely ex-Freddie Mackers that I worked with. Vice versa. So. Is that another Zandyism? A Hauser? That no. was yeah, that's a new one. No, no wait, no, no, that's, no, that, well, that, that goes way, way back. Oh, yeah. uh, okay. I've never heard that. I should have taken credit for it though, but no. Should've. Yeah. Yeah. Usually Ed would have called me on that one. Yeah. yeah. No, Hausers, <laughs> I don't know who coined that term, but that's been around a while. Yeah. For the housing industrial complex, right? I mean, the folks that are in that world and I, I say Ed and I've been kind of in that world, right? Wouldn't you say? Yeah. 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 Well, but don't forget, uh, you know, housing as well, you know, we'll talk. Housing goes way back. Uh, there are you know, great quotes from Lincoln and FDR about how housing is important to this nation. So uh, being a Hauser is not a bad thing. Oh, oh, yeah. Different than yeah. a Homer. Right? Yeah. A Homer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, let's let's dive into let's uh, we're going to start with the Ed, as I, we were discussing earlier, we're going to dive into a bit of the economic statistics. We play a bit of a game. Each of us uh, uh, identify a, a statistic and the rest of the group tries to figure out what that statistic is. You can questions and, you know, clues, that kind of thing. The, the best statistic is one that's not too easy. So that it's a slam dunk that Ryan will get it uh, in uh, not too hard that no one gets it, and maybe even one that is relevant to the topic of, of the day, the big topic, which is housing and housing finance. And you're more than welcome, uh, Ed, to play this game. I, I, I know you are you have many statistics up your sleeve. Uh, I, oh, I, and, I make them up is my problem. But, uh, <laughs> fair enough. They're, they're, harder to, they're harder to guess if they're made up. But All fair and loving statistics. And, you know, Ryan likes to throw in one more rule, and that is it has to be a statistic from the last week. But that doesn't apply to you, Ed. Uh, that just applies to the, the rest of us. So and housing, housing doesn't change that quickly. So uh... That's a good point. That's a good point. So we're going to begin with Ryan. Uh, Ryan, you want to lead the way? What, what's your statistic for the week? All right, so I'll give you two numbers. They're okay. related. 1.6% and 2.5%. And this is a statistic that came out this week. Presumably, mm -hmm. it okay, did one point six, and you said two point five. Correct. Okay, and is it in the retail sales numbers? It is not. Okay, 
Is it in the industrial, industrial production number? <laughs> no. No. Think oh. This this re- this release you usually don't associate it with numbers, but once oh. in a while it comes out with numbers. Oh. Is it the beige book? No, the beige book didn't come out. This no, no, that never has numbers. No, no. That, yeah, no, that no. Uh, you're on. You're on the right track. I am on the right track. Something the Fed. Oh, That's is it right, in the man. FOMC uh, release? Because the Fed met this week and they came out with uh, with their uh, statement mm-hmm. uh, and their forecast. Getting I'm getting close, right? You're getting very close. Okay, one one. Say it again. One point six and two point five. Mm-hmm. Is, is it in their forecasts? One of their it forecasts? Is it a is a projection. Yes, it's a projection. Oh, Chris, we got to be. Oh, two. I know. Oh, wait. Interest wait. rate. Two point five is the terminal federal funds rate. Yep. What's terminal the one six? Huh? Okay, go ahead and explain. Okay, so the terminal funds rate is where the funds rate should land in the long run, mm-hmm. consistent with a full employment economy with inflation at target and the economy growing at its potential. How about that? For exactly. Rate? That's perfect. 2.5. Okay, now 1.6. Chris, help me out on this one. Or Ed. What, They're what related. 1.6. Oh, is it? Is, is it, it? They give us a distribution of. of oh, I wouldn't uh, send you guys down that rabbit hole. All right. Uh, so okay, 1.6 is uh, what no. markets expect the terminal Fed funds oh, rate to be. Oh. Two and a half percent is what oh. we have and the Fed. So there's a little bit of a disconnect. Well, so, when you say that, how do you know that you're going into uh, futures markets and teasing out where the, the long run contracts are landing? Is that? Yeah, I mean, you look at the five year, five year forward nominal treasury yield. Okay. And right now that's 1.6%. Oh, okay. oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, I see what you're saying. You're, so, you're, you take the 10 year yield, you decompose it, you get the real short term rate, you add in inflation. And you're at one point six, correct? Oh wow! And historically, so it's the whole idea is. I mean, things can change like that. Can move higher, closer to the Fed's target, but you know, this tightening cycle may start sooner than people anticipate, but it might end faster because markets may push back against how high the Fed funds rate can get. Hey, Ed, do you have a view on all this? On you know. Uh, you know, thinking around where rates should be in the long run. This is, you know, a key question for housing, obviously, you know, particularly long-term interest rates, but. I mean, that's why it was a beautiful number. Yeah. I mean, this, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and the 10-year rate uh, still sticking it around. Uh, did it, I don't think it's broken 1.5 yet, has it? Today, it's like down to 1.4 or, or, yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting what, uh, and of course, mortgage rates are keyed more off of the the ten year rate. Um, in some sense, either the markets think the pandemic's going to last forever. I hope not, or it goes back to sort of the fundamental demographics that uh, there's going to be more savings than investment uh, globally. Right, right. Hey, one thing though that maybe also be playing a role is all the QE, right? I mean, the balance sheet, the Fed's balance sheet is so mm-hmm. bloated at this point. And it's not only the Fed, every ba- every central bank on the planet is larded up on, on a sovereign debt. And that has to be taking a big chunk out of long-term interest rates, right, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, if you when you decompose it, you look at the term premium, and that's where QE quantitative easing mostly affects long-term rates. 
it's still negative and it's actually over the last couple of weeks fallen even further. Yeah. So, right. So, so, so do you have a kind of a rule of thumb, you know, translating the size of the federal reserve's balance sheet, the amount of quantitative easing they've done and what it means for long-term rates? Have you thought about that? I, I used to have a rule of thumb. I can't quite remember what, I think it was like for every percent QE as a percent of GDP for every percentage point of GDP, it was four, it was like four, four. basis points yeah. or something like that. That sounds right. Okay. So if you do the arithmetic in a, if you go back before the pandemic and look at the, bal the, the balance sheet as a percent of GDP and look at it today, I think it's up about 15 percentage points, right? Something like that. Correct. And so you take 15 times four, that's 0.6 percentage points. So instead of, let's say, 1.4% today, if the Fed had not QE'd and not bond, bought bonds, but not expanded its balance sheet, the long-term yield, all else being equal, would be 2%. Two, right? Yeah, 2%. I mean, the right. first few rounds of QE after the financial crisis, when you add it all up, reduced long-term rates by 100 basis points. Say that so again? After the, great, uh, after the Great Recession. Yeah. Those three, four rounds of QE that the Fed did, including yeah. Operation Twist, reduced the ten-year Treasury yield uh, by hundred basis points, or or full percentage points for folks. Or for yep, don't know basis points. Okay, okay. So, so it's consequential, significant. One other quick question about that. I know I'm going down a lot of rabbit holes, but just I'm curious because it bugs me. Do you think because of the Fed's QE and the reduct the impact we just uh, articulated for long-term rates? That's messing with our ability to glean inflation expectations from ten-year yields. That you know maybe what we think we know we don't really know because everything's all messed up by the Fed's QE. Yeah, I mean it's particularly messed up, messing up tips. So Treasury inflation protected securities. So the Fed's been buying a boatload of these things, and we use that to calculate market-based measures of inflation expectations. So I do think it's distorting it a little bit, but. You know, you can go and look at other measures of inflation expectations that are not being affected by the Fed. So inflation swaps and everything suggests that markets think, you know, inflation is transitory and we'll get back to 2% at some point. Okay. So what you're saying is even though there are, there's these distortions created by the Fed's bond buying, it's quantitative easing, even abstracting from those, uh, uh, those biases that result, uh, market is investors are still saying inflation's coming back mm -hmm. down. Okay. Yes. Yep. All right. I feel the like surveys that. say similar things as well, right? Which surveys? Uh, uh, consumer surveys, economist surveys, business okay. leader surveys, they're all suggest yeah. the same. Right. Okay. Interestingly, they, they did that, uh, those surveys by age of the respondent. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, us oldies who remember the inflation were much higher than the people who have uh, never seen inflation. Uh, it was, I think, a good percentage or point or more difference between, you know, broken out by uh, age of respondent. That is really cool. I didn't know, mm -hmm. where did you, where do you see that data, Ed? The uh, New York Fed, I believe. New York, yeah, Fed. New York Fed. I oh. read it in the Wall Street Journal, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I didn't, yeah, the source. Yes, yeah, New York Fed. That is really cool. Yeah. That's interesting. So the, so people's inflation expectations are, conditioned on what they've lived through. I guess that makes sense, but I, yeah, yeah, really. Wow. I, I you can probably argue that some people's inflation forecasts are also based on their experiences. Are, are you referring Sorry. to me, Mr. Sweet? Or 
No. No, I'm saying the three of us. Like, okay. Remember, we go back to our inflation forecast. Like, you're higher than I am, and Chris is right That's in the right. middle. I'm I on wonder... the high side of you guys. You're on the low yeah. side. Yeah, because you're the exper- old guy and you're the young guy. That's well, right. no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you <laughs> went, you, you lived through an you're inflation period. <laughs> the, the, the and I've never experienced inflation. So you, you have the regression of age and yes. uh, good, good fit that with three is, points. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. I'm going to have to go take a look at that data. Okay. Mr. Dorides, you're up. Uh, what's your All right. 152,000. I know what it is. Ding, 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 oh, ding, 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 ding. Oh, no. You know why down? I know this, Ed? Because he keeps going to the same well every single feels like week. <laughs> no, this is topical. This is, <laughs> goes right this is housing. To this is housing. It's a good statistic, though. Ryan, you don't know this statistic? All right, let me give you the corollary. 752,000. No, no, no. what, what, what corollary? 752,000 related. Ding, 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 ding. Right, you got that. Too. I know right, the answer to that all one, right. too. All right, go for it. <laughs> Actually, you know oh. why I know all this? Because those were my statistics, Dorides. You took my You're, number. Uh, uh, we're right. All right we're Ryan, on the same do you know these like... numbers? I can't believe no. that. Digging into the bowels a little bit of the report of the of the housing starts report. Oh, you're going. You can't just give me the right. top line. No, this, is, right? this is important. These are important is, statistics, yeah, actually. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I, I give I give Chris credit for this because I was I was going down this road, which makes me now I gotta come up with another statistic. Oh no. Okay, I can do it. I can do it. All right. Back to normal. Uh, we know. Yeah. Okay, all right. Seven seven fifty. <laughs> that is the number of homes that are under construction and single family is it just single yeah single yeah. family homes under construction and that's the highest level well, since uh i think march of 2007 i believe is that right chris yeah yes that's right that's right yep the are, you guys got to be impressed with this no yeah ed, are, no are i am impressed? I'm impressed. ed ed is thinking i he, ed Chris told me this is what he was going to ask. That's how impressed Ed is. I could. I am impressed. <laughs> 152k. That is. Um, that's also interesting. That's the number of homes that have I've been authorized to build, but haven't even started. And that also is. Is that a record high or pretty close to a record high, Chris? I don't know. You know that's the highest since 2006. Oh, oh, it is. Okay, so you know, you add those two numbers together. That's a lot of housing out there that's going to come to. You know. You know. Yeah. Uh, Partly it's because, well, you explain what's going on here, Chris. That's your statistics. So what, what's the significance of these numbers? Yeah, so the 152,000, that's uh, uh, the other important point about that is up for 41% on a year-over-year basis, right? And it points uh, directly to the supply chain issues, right? So builders are certainly interested in building. They see plenty of opportunity. They're getting the permits and they are you know, starting where they can, but they have a, a boatload of uh, homes that, again, have been authorized, but not started. They're kind of in reserve. They're waiting for uh, workers or uh, other supply chain issues to resolve themselves. And it just points to the backlog uh, that they're that they're facing. So they're not able to actually put up all the homes that they actually would want to given this current environment. Yep, yep, good statistic. Very that was good. a good one. That was a good one, right? Yep. A very good one. See, yeah. all right. So, so, okay. so Ed, are You're you learning. play this game? You wanna play the game? <laughs> Yeah. All right. So my, Fire. Mine, okay, are, mine are not this week, but mine are November, since, as I said, a lot of, uh, a lot of housing data is quarterly, if not uh, on that. But 74 point, I'm going to give you four numbers in descending four. order. Okay. 74.0%, 40, 60.2%, uh, 
48.3% and 44.0%. I know. I know the I know this. I think I know. Were you guys emailing? No, no, no. There, I think I know. Cuz there is this. no okay. way. Yeah, I Those you, four numbers <laughs> rattle off. I know off. this. Yeah. I I know this, these numbers. Yeah. Unless I'm, I could be wrong. There, there are pretty obvious ones if you, you, this is what you follow, but yeah. Yeah. Chris, Ryan? Chris should know this. If Chris doesn't, look, he's looking, he's trying to, he's Googling. He's Googling. No, no. I can see I'm him. He's looking down. Up. He's Googling. I wrote them down. So. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, you, you want me to go? See, what's throwing me off is all, you said quarterly. So yeah, that, rules quarterly. Out, that rules out an AHB. So quarterly. Hmm. I Think they're home ownership quarterly. rates. I'm going to put you out of your by mind. By age, right? Home ownership yeah. rates by by racial ethnicity, right? And 75 is like white. What 70. 62 is what? Uh, Ed, what? Uh, 60.2 is Asian American. Oh, Asian, Asian Americans, and then Hispanic is 8.3. Yes, and then the black uh, home ownership rate is obviously very yeah. low. Right. And then uh, I actually very quickly, I'll add three numbers that were not in the release, but to show that I can multiply. Uh, if you turn those into households, what each group would be if they had the same home ownership rate as whites, you would have 5.2 million additional black households, 4.7 million additional Hispanic households, and 1.0 million more Asian American households. Wow. owning houses. So uh, you better start building uh, more than 173,000 units if we're going to yeah. close those wow. gaps. Hey, you know, if we don't make any as a nation progress in improving home ownership for uh, minority groups, for Black, Hispanic, uh, Asian Americans, uh, the home ownership rate is going to decline pretty significantly here, isn't it? Because the share of the population that is minority is going to continue is rising pretty rapidly, particularly yeah. the Hispanic share, and that's going to continue to rise. So, homeownership is going to fall pretty dramatically if we don't make some progress. I would think, or is there some? Yeah. Am I thinking about that right? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I think that is right. I think, uh, and of course, the Joint Center on Housing Studies uh, up at Harvard, you know, has done those types of projections uh, and you know, sort of broken it down. Uh, by again, age, vintage, and when the households are coming on. But yes, you'll see a drop in the overall home ownership rate if we don't uh, change that mix. Does it surprise you, Ed? That uh, and I know we're getting a little bit into the big topic, but you know, since we're kind of here, that you know, we when I say we, the collective, we have not seen any improvement in home ownership, and really since I think soon at you know soon after. The Great Depression. There was a big increase in home ownership, obviously, because of all the policy changes. Fannie, Freddie, well, Fannie was put on the planet. FHA uh, uh, was put on the planet. There was a lot of policy put in place to promote home ownership, and it, it worked. And but really, since I'm I'm speaking from my from memory, so I may not have it exactly right. But really, since the '60s, '70s, we really haven't made much progress. That's right. Uh, you know, the black home ownership. Uh, rates went down to what they were in 1968. Uh, right. So does that go to policy or is that, what is that? What, what do you, I mean, Fannie and Freddie were put on the planet to promote home ownership, to, you know, most fundamentally, right? I mean. Well, you know, in some sense, or even today, you know, it is the FHA via 
and BA programs that are the mm. gateway to first-time homeownership. Freddie and Fannie do great things, but it's not their basic product. Where with uh, FHA, it's you know eighty percent of what they do, eighty to ninety percent are first-time home buyers. Uh, FHA has you know been around you know a long time. A lot of this comes back to questions of how the bottom quintile has and, and to the bottom two quintiles have done in terms of income and growth. Uh, and you know, really the, their wages uh, have not kept up. And that's where you'd expect to be the margin to be, where if you're gonna increase the home ownership rate, it's people in the bottom two quintiles who have to make the leap uh, to home ownership. So you say you're, you, what you seem to be suggesting is it's not housing policy per se that's failed. It's just broadly the inability of our society and economy to lift up the financial fortunes of folks that are renting. That yeah, don't. I mean we can. You know, it's one of those things. If you're if you're trying to get you know the you know those uh, four numbers that uh, I just you know the numbers I just gave you you know, represent ten you know ten million households. You have to look at all levers. We, you know, we can talk uh, about this. Uh, the mortgage market can do a few things that it hasn't uh, done, but it's not financing. That is, uh, it, it to a large extent, uh, are questions of income uh, and, and supply of afford. You know, we need to build more supply of, of affordable houses. Um, on that, in it, you know, traditionally, a lot of these cities you would build at the high end. And you would see filtering down uh, to the lower end of affordability. Uh, there's been some studies to say that filtering process has slowed down considerably. So it's you know it's difficult to find affordable housing in a, in a lot of communities. Got it, Chris. Do you have a perspective on this? I mean, in terms of the lack of progress in the last fifty years on home ownership, you know what what do you have yeah, any perspective I'd on that? I agree. Uh, we need to identify the the root causes. I don't see that it's I don't see that it's financing, right? And Fannie and Freddie, like I don't. Their mission is liquidity, uh, first of all, right? Keep the mortgage market operating. Make sure that there's ample liquidity in all environments, right? The uh, they don't control the levers in terms of supply. Neither does FHA really either, right? So, and that I view as the real factor here. And in addition to certainly incomes and the ability of folks to pay. The supply is outside the, the purview of the, um, the federal government. It's much more in the purview of local governments in terms of zoning and where we choose to locate housing or permit housing to, uh, to be built. So. Right. Okay. Well, let's come back to housing. You guys want uh, one more statistic we, to, to round this out? I'm going to mix it yeah. up a little bit uh, just to mix it up. 16.5%. Uh, 16.5%. All right, so this, I guess this is non-housing related. Uh, yeah, non-housing related. Okay. And it is from this week. Indeed it Probably is. Probably not. Oh, it is. Oh, <laughs> it is. Indeed okay. it is. Right. We go in retail sales, something in the... Go in retail sales. Okay. All right, let me, let me think about Yeah. That. Is it year over year? Uh, remember? Building, it is year over year. Yeah, uh, building materials. Uh, what, it, what is it? Uh, building materials. No, I, that, I would consider that to be a little over the top to go that deep into the balance. Are you doing control retail sales year over year? Uh, close. Yeah, control meaning X auto, X gas, X building materials, right? And X restaurants. So a oh, lot of X's. Yeah. Right. yeah. 
No, I didn't quite go there, but you're close. Non-auto? Non-auto, non-gas. So okay. retail sale, this is year over year percent growth in retail sales, excluding autos and gasoline. So kind of a my proxy for uh, you know for Christmas sales, holiday sales. So, but uh, this yeah. is through November. This is through November. So we need one more, of course, data point for December. But it could be a disaster in the year-over-year -year increase in holiday sales. So that would be uh, retail sales X auto X gas November and December this year compared to last year is going to be well into the double digits you know mm -hmm. again even if december is a wipeout you know that that you know bad news. it shouldn't be huh it, it should shouldn't be, be. Right? it no. should not be right no. right mm -hmm. we're already halfway through so hard, hard to imagine that would be um the i you know obviously some of that's inflation you know clearly uh, retail goods prices are up a lot and you know i'd say you know maybe seven eight nine percent might be retail because CPI is up almost 7% year over mm -hmm. year. So it's probably higher for, for goods. So that still leaves you real growth of close to double digit, right? Right? I mean, yeah. this could be the best, if you, if you measure Christmas sales by that measure, this could end up being the best Christmas on record, I think. I think just amazing. So all the, all the hand-wringing, all the you know, gloom and doom, you know, everyone's really, it feels like everyone's so pessimistic. The, the economy's chugging, right? At least up till now. Now it could change with Omicron and Delta, obviously, you know, the way another wave's coming here pretty fast and we'll see how that plays out. But, you know, feels like the economy's pretty strong. Yeah, it's going to be strong this quarter. Yeah. I'm worried about early next year. As it's early leave. next year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah if you look at case counts, it's... And look at Chester County. We're almost higher than you know, that's where we're located. Is almost higher than it was at any point throughout this entire pandemic, it's, and that's just in a few weeks. Yeah, no, that's true. Hey, are you guys? Uh, one thing that confused another thing that confuses me, and then we're going to dive into housing, is if you if you look at the economic statistics, I mentioned the holiday sales, but you know many others as well. The economy feels strong. You know, feels mm -hmm. like it's growing strongly. Yet, consumer sentiment surveys are very, very weak. You know, the University of Michigan survey is a low point in the entire pandemic. Is that, how do you square that circle? Well, you know, what, what's going on there? Do you have a view on that? Anyone have a gas, view? gas prices and gas prices. the pandemic. And the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Especially for UMich, that's very sensitive to gas fluctuations in gasoline prices. The University of Michigan survey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think, Ed? I, is that do you find it? Is this gotten on your radar screen? Is this something you've thought about? Uh, um, yeah, not much. This clearly, yeah. uh, it is the inflation is uh, at points can be shocking to people who haven't experienced it. And then, of course, you know what? As we know, wages you know sort of keep up, sort of don't, and I think it adds to the volatility uh, for the consumer. Um, you know, if they don't expect their wages to climb, uh, or if you have savings, right? Uh, if you had your money, uh, you know, in, uh, a senior who had his money or her money in a savings account all of a sudden has 10% less money than they had a year ago. You know, not quite, but 
I think there's people are trying to grapple with what inflation might mean to them. So I wouldn't discount, I mean, gasoline is one of it, but it, it's not the only element that's experiencing uh, inflation. Rent, you know, rents are way up uh, yeah. in many areas. And I think, uh, you know, as you know, the how we put uh, housing into the CPI uh, is uh, rudimentary at best, a lot, especially the owner-occupied stock. So what's happening to those numbers, uh, both the headline numbers and then the gas pump, the grocery store, uh, and the like, I think it's very concerning to people. Yeah. And what you're referring to on the rent is, you know, if you actually look at the rent increases that people are seeing for new move-ins, for people who are right. actually starting to rent, it's like, I don't know, it's like 15, 20% right. increase over last year. And, but that's not what's showing up in the consumer price index because of the way the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the keeper of the data, translates the rent increases into what it means for, you know, uh, CPI rent. Right. It's the uh, it's that sick, you know it's that owner occupied uh, two thirds that gets yeah. just, it, you know, it gets in there, but it gets in there probably with some a lot of noise and a lot of lags. A lot of lags. Yeah. Right. Chris, do you have any view on that? On the, dis on the disconnect between sales, what consumers are saying, and what they're doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm increasingly concerned about measurement errors in the surveys and so in terms of who oh. responds to the survey okay. and how they respond. If you look at the University of Michigan, they have a breakout by political party. Mm -hmm. There's such a gap between the Democrats and on current economic conditions, let alone your views on future economic conditions. But it's so closely tied to who's in the White House. It switches like the, the day after an election, <laughs> right? So I don't know how credible that is in terms of a, a true measure of sentiment, right? Do I, it's in terms of the soft data, you look at the hard data, which is how people are actually spending it. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's where the rubber hits the road. Uh, yeah, that's why I always watch what consumers do, not what they say. Yeah. Although there are times when what, what they say is important, right? Turning inflection points, points economy. Yep. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But I don't think we're at an inflection That's point right typical. now. That's not typical. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. That was, very good. Mark, you had a strong showing. I, I know. That, that was good. I was waiting for someone to say that. Yeah. I, I'll, take, I I'll take it. I had a strong showing this week. You know, this that is very strong. Whatever it is, 38, we need to mark it down. Okay. Right, we'll give you your cowbell there. Right, there you go. I got right. my cowbell yeah. ring. See, now we have to have an episode next, next week because we can't let Mark. And the uh, year, yeah. and the yeah, year like this, because we're not going to hear it. The end of it until next year. <laughs> I had a strong showing, baby. All right, let's turn. Let's turn to housing more formally, and I think the there's a lot of things to focus on, but I think the thing that is now clearly the most significant pressing issue is supply, right? The lack of supply. Would you agree with that, Ed? Is that fair in the top of list of things yeah. to be worried about in housing? It would be supply. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, partly uh, there's always the question: prices are, you know, up almost twenty percent. You know, I the question I always get asked is: is it a bubble? Oh. And you know, I go back to you know our, our economics one hundred and one days. You know, there's the the alternative to a bubble is just an old cobweb model. I don't know if you remember the cobwebs. Oh, sure, we talk uh, about that all the time on yeah. Inside Economics. Yeah, this is a record. The cobweb model has come up. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, you know, in some sense, it doesn't feel like a bubble. You know, it's if you look at prices for, of houses versus rents, we just talked about rents going way up. So if you, rents go up, 
you know, the use, you know, you would expect uh, the asset value to go up or prices to go up. The, the, the amount of flipping, speculation, irrational exuberance, you know, there's some there, but not a lot. Um, and, the, you know, the alternative is we've just underbuilt. Uh, people have estimated, you know, pick your number, three to five million units over the last decade that should have been built in terms of, you know, uh, housing formation and potential housing formation that we need about three to five more, three million to five million more units. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, even the tornadoes that we experienced uh, this last week reminds us that uh, there's a good, you know, several hundred thousand units a, a year get destroyed uh, through fires and natural disasters and just sort of depreciation. So we've been sort of underbuilding and, you know, it, it clearly, you know, we expect to see a supply response. It seems like it's going to take a long time for that supply response to be so great as to bring prices way down. Uh, people expect a slowing of prices with that increased supply, but I don't think anyone uh, that I know of is forecasting prices to drop that we still need to work through you know, a good deal of supply. So, so what you're saying is, uh, you know, obviously, house prices have been rising very rapidly. Depending on the index, the house price index you look at, it's up 15, 20% year over year nationwide. That's nationwide. Right. Uh, but there, there's uh, good fundamental reasons for that, most significantly being we got a, short, a severe shortage of just homes. There's just yeah. more people out there looking for homes than there are actual homes. And that if you, it's not a bubble. Prices are up, not a bubble because you have this fundamental supply side support, but also you just don't see the kind of traditional characteristics of a bubble flipping you mentioned, which is I buy with the intent of selling quickly at a profit back in the financial bubble, the, the, the financial crisis, yeah. the housing bubble, which was, I think we all concur as a bubble. You had a lot of people, a lot of flippers, and they were using debt, you know, borrowing money to finance the purchase to leverage up and, and you don't see that today is what you're saying. So yeah. it's not a bubble. Chris, do you concur with that view? Do you, is that, is that your perspective too? Do you, do you buy yeah, into that? I do. Would you push okay. back on any element of that? Um, no, I guess uh, the only caveat I would throw in there is the, the time horizon. I don't see a bubble certainly right now. I think uh, the factors are there, right? A big demographic wave with the millennials coming in. Right, so it's actually justifying uh, additional building and certainly uh, the additional demand. That that's different than the financial crisis where we actually had the reverse. We had that smaller Gen X generation coming through, which actually exacerbated uh, the issue. But I I do get worried as I look five, ten, twenty, thirty, and beyond, because that wave will pass through. The next generation is smaller. And the baby boomers are going to be downsizing at that point. So I, there's going to be more supply if you were less demand at that point. So I wonder if that does also factor into the minds of builders as they're thinking about their investment decisions. Yeah, I, times are good now. I want to certainly meet the market, but I'd like that wave to continue. I'm going to extend that as long as possible uh, versus a boom and bust uh, type of cycle. So Really? I don't yeah. know. I think you're giving builders way too much credit. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, well, given the yeah. experience they went through, right? The, the publicly traded builders, which are now a larger share of the home building market, probably may, they're probably more disciplined. Yeah, for sure. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Huh. 
I think I think first order is just their capacity constraints. Capacity. You're right. Yeah, sure. But maybe in the back of their mind, they're also thinking, "I'm not going to overpay. I'm not going to, you know, really ramp up the capacity. Do everything I possibly could because, you know, better to let the cycle." uh, Well, it's also better to have uh, bigger margins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. they're they're not sitting there. Yeah. it is the competition that will eventually come in. Uh, and, the, you know, the big you know, immigration policy is sort of always lingering in a variety of ways. First and foremost, household formation is very dependent on immigration. Uh, and second, a lot of the skilled labor uh, comes from uh, many of the recent immigrants, too. So uh, lots lots of uncertainty there. Yeah. Uh, I, we also put together these... Uh... Well, recently we've been because we get the, the actual uh, housing transactions and we can see, uh, you know, who the owner is and how quickly they hold on to the property. Mm-hmm. And we have seen a significant increase in the investor share, investor defined as a corporate owner of the property. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that it's mostly long term institutional investors, you know, the, 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 the folks that are buying property. Uh, to rent the property, so to buy and rent. And that's become a very popular um, kind of uh, business model, you know, since the financial crisis, and that's come onto the fore. So the actual flipping, those would be people who buy, and then we can see this, sell the property. It's an arm's length transaction, at least within one year of their purchase. That remains low, right, Chris? We haven't seen any real pickup there. Yeah, that's right. Are some markets starting to pick up, like a like a some of the real juiced right markets, like a Phoenix, for example? I think we see we've seen some increase, but some of that. There are also some oddball or markets you wouldn't think of as having some of that activity, as people perhaps are working remotely and looking for deals in kind of second tier, cheaper uh, cities. But but yeah, by and large, we don't see speculative behavior across the board. Yeah. Hey, uh, Ed, you said one thing I want to probe a little bit deep, more deeply about no price declines. No one's forecasting price declines. You know, one one uh, thought I had was that uh, one reason why we're seeing the, the surge in prices is that mortgage rates have come down in the pandemic. They The 30-year fix is going for 3%-ish, which is you know about as low as it's ever been in history. And that that juices up demand, right? Because you know people can get a home with a low mortgage rate. That bumps up against the lack of supply, and that just causes prices to go skyward. Yeah. So if you buy into that kind of narrative, then if mortgage rates rise, and it feels like they ought to rise at some point, but you know who, who the hell knows when? But they ought to rise. That that's going to suck the energy out of the market pretty fast. That affordability. The, the higher mortgage rates conflate with the higher house prices, affordability gets crushed, demand gets nailed, and we actually could see some price declines. Does that does that resonate with you, that kind of thought? Well, you know, there's always a question, some of this goes back to the question of the underlying inflation. Do we see real declines versus nominal declines? So keep that, okay. uh, yep. just put that on the uh, aside for a moment. Um, you know, it, it's, Obviously, it'll dampen demand, although rents, you know, a lot of these decisions are not uh, purely based on interest rates. You know, future expectations become an important part. And then just people really want to live certain places 
where they want to buy, you know, buy a house. They want the extra bedrooms that rental won't always afford them. Um, you know, I don't see it happening with the 50 basis points uh, increases or the uh, even the 100 basis points uh, being a major effect. Uh, you know, when mortgage rates went to uh, back, you know, 1981, when Volcker stepped on the brakes or slammed on the brakes and uh, mortgage rates were at 12, 13 percent, you know, of course, that would uh, that would be a big dampening and, and could drive prices down. But if mortgage rates are 4%, 4.5% instead of 3%, uh, don't see a big effect uh, out there. Let me ask you this. Okay. Uh, we, you come back a year from now. A year from now, mortgage rates are still 3%-ish, maybe up a little bit. House prices have risen another 15 to 20% nationwide. Do you would you be saying the same thing? Do you think as you're saying uh, today? Well, that's always the yeah. At some uh, at that Chris, all else being equal, all else being equal, I would I'd yeah. Th th this is always the I'd worry about it being a bubble at that point. Yes, at, at that point. Okay, all right. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you look at the FHFA's capital requirements, they have a long-term trend. You know, they adjust LTV for the long-term trend. Uh, uh, many of us, I think maybe even you, uh, have written on that's not a great way of locking in what you want to, what you want to accomplish in terms of controlling capital. You just sort of put it on automatic pilot. There, you know, the, the Fed and the whole Basel uh arrangement allows for people to FSOC to do capital uh, counter cyclical adjustments but the FHFA rule puts it on automatic pilot uh I think last I checked they and this is a quarter ago in terms of their adjustments so before the latest increases uh they thought we were about uh 16 above long-term real averages yeah they, they give you a quarter of five percent so they adjust all the ltvs by 11 percent. i think was the number uh at you know at that point again you know instead of 11 percent above the corridor what you hypothesized is we'd be you know more than 20 percent outside that corridor of long-term trends we, ha we haven't seen that before uh, that, that would that would be worrisome. Yep. That you there, you said a boatload. I, I know, uh, Chris. You've been using my term boat. That boatload is my. That's a Zandy. Oh, that's his. But you really said a lot there. There's a lot to unpack, uh, and I, I'm not going to attempt to do that except to say that the fifty. What you're saying is uh, FHFA, the regulator of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, has uh, capital standards for those institutions as part of setting those standards. They try to account for uh, whether housing markets are uh, richly valued, overvalued, and certainly yeah. if they're a bubble. They want to say, hey, Fannie, Freddie, these markets feel really hot, sizzling, overvalued, there's froth. We think you need to hold more capital against that. Yeah. So that's the, the principle here. And, and what you're saying is in that calculation, they're coming up with a, at the current point in time based on the FHFA house price series, which is actually obviously just for Fannie and Freddie loans, not the entire market, that it's overvalued by about 15%. Right. That's what, and by the way, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, that's based on our modeling that we've recently been doing, that's where we're landing, about yep. 15%. That's right. 
And that what that means though, Ed, that's nationwide. That means that you got a lot of markets out there that are overvalued by a lot more than that, you know, by 25, 30, 35%. So, you know, I I think I I think the market is actually quite vulnerable, you know, if rates rise even a little bit, I suspect. Not nationwide. Here's the other thing about price, house prices that people forget is important. It's measured house prices, right? Because what happens is you know, if if markets go weak, people just pull the home off the market. They're not going to sell their home. They got, you know, everyone's seeing these house prices today. Like I look at Zillow for this home in Pennsylvania and I'm going, oh my gosh, that's how much this is worth. And it's going to take me a lot to sell my home for less than that anytime in the near future. Cause that's my so-called reservation price. Yeah. So if I, if I don't have to sell, I'm not going to sell. So what you see is transactions come off. You don't see actual sales and you don't measure it in prices so you might not see the price declines because the shadow so-called shadow yeah. price might yeah. decline but not the actual price anyway so let's go let's now go back to supply because you know this is key to you know a lot of what we just talked about in terms of house prices but also in terms of uh uh you know what's going on in terms of people's lives you know they're paying more in rent a house single family housing less affordable they, they have to move further out from wherever their job, farther away from their job. It's not good for, you know, commutes and the environment. It's not good for the macro economy. Lots of problems with the lack of supply. What, you know, and there's a lot of debate and discussion around this. What, you know, if there, and I'm sure there's a lot, you have a long list of the reasons why supply has been so constrained, but what, what would you put at the top of the list of reasons in your mind, Ed? Yeah, it, it goes back, I think, to you know, local policy. Hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, we don't want the density. Uh, we, we come up with ingenious why, reasons why density is not good for, you know, w whatever. Um, and so I think that's uh, a large part of it. I, I'll go back to you know, you go down the list, but just in broad categories, our transportation policy uh, doesn't, you know, we get just more congested, uh, very hard to build a dense subway system the way New York has uh, and the like. It would be much easier to build density if you had the transportation. We tie, and then so the other big category is education. Uh, the way we fund our schools are, are very tied to the tax base and, uh, you know, and, and the like. We don't tie we don't tie it to general economic well-being of the, you know, you know, the larger uh, area. We tie it to the uh, house prices of that community and the number of units. So it's like a per capita type thing. Uh, so education policy, transportation policy. And then just sort of generals, which then uh, you know shows itself in our zoning policy and permitting policy. Very hard uh, to get the permits right. uh, on that. Yeah. So you know that's where it is. And then of course you know lumber and labor's got more expensive in, in this area. Um, we we don't uh, invest in the building trades the way we used to. Um, so it's just uh, more difficult. You know, there was always the hope that you know 3D printing was going to drive down costs. Um, I was always a little bit of a skeptical, a skeptical on that. Um, but it's uh, we, you know we're seeing more stuff manufactured, you know trusses and the like uh, in factories. But the cost has not come down with technology. 
um, on that. So we haven't seen the technological improvement that you would have hoped uh, to see either. So, and that's also largely policy driven. So it's, uh, you know, I'm up at MIT, they keep on having all sorts of nifty things in their laboratories. Um, maybe one day we'll find a house that grows itself <laughs> um, <laughs> and we'll solve it. Uh, uh, right after we uh, get nuclear fusion and don't have to worry about energy <laughs> costs. But, so technology may get us there, but uh, you know, so far, uh, uh, we, outside of TikTok, we really haven't seen things that have you know, uh, affected this market the way it would be nice if we could. Yeah. So at the top, there's a long list of reasons why supply has been con uh, 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 lacking. At the top of the list is... is uh, restrictions on development, zoning issues and other, which, uh, I don't know, it seems like that's a pretty tough one to tackle, right? I mean, politically, I don't know how you do that, because the federal government really doesn't have a whole lot they can do here. Although, you know, they can use sticks, but politically using sticks to change zoning laws would be pretty tough, I think. Uh, I wouldn't count on it. So, well, this gets to, uh, of course, I should ask before I move on, is that, that list sound right to you? In, 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 yeah, I've been beating yeah, the yeah, zoning exactly. drum yeah. on this podcast Brian, you for a long time. This? Do you do you want to push back at all? No, Ryan's government. kind of a gadfly. He'll he'll take the other side of most anything, but it, <laughs> but I don't know about this one. No, well, I agree. Zoning is a big problem. Buildable lots is another one. Which I mean, one? if you look around, yeah. you know, the availability of finding buildable lots. Yeah. Oh. Land development. I mean, exactly. I mean, if you look in South Jersey, you know, you think of beach towns where they knock down old homes to build new ones. Now they're doing it in suburban Philadelphia. They're going into neighborhoods, buying houses, knocking them down and building new ones. Yeah, I would put it more broadly than just zoning. It's clearly zoning. It's the permitting process. It's, uh, yeah. and, and the sewers and the, yeah. everything yeah. you need to do to sure. put, you know, get the shovel into the ground. Uh, the estimates of both the time cost and monetary cost uh, to get a shovel into the ground. Uh, it's just, if anything, technology should have made that faster um, in a, all, all sorts of ways, and it hasn't. I mean, even uh, I, uh, going back quickly to the mortgage market, it's still not any cheaper to originate a mortgage, and yet we have better technology. And someone needs to step back and sort of you know, wonder why we haven't harnessed the technology uh, to make these things less costly. Yeah, good point. Good point. So <clears throat> this takes us to policy and, you know, what should policymakers be doing? So I've got two specific questions, policy questions for you. The first is around the housing policy in President Biden's Build Back Better legislation. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of that legislation? I mean, it is focused on the supply side of the market. Uh, how, how do you think about it? Well, yeah, I... I... You know, in some sense, it's a catch-up. Uh, it, it's really not that bold. Uh, absolutely needed, but it's sort of a catch-up if we had had sort of normal policy all along. Uh, you know, I think of that as um, whether it's public housing that had, when I was there, the estimate was we were short of $50 billion of capital improvements in our public housing. You know, 2 million of our most vulnerable households absolutely needed. Uh, you know, it shouldn't even be a question. You have to maintain, uh, you know, that type of, of housing and infrastructure. 
it's also housing vouchers. And again, you know, people have you know done this very important. Uh, and it's I think the Build Back Better uh, creates like three hundred that two to three hundred thousand additional uh, vouchers. But we haven't expanded, even though our populations expanded from when it was 200 million to 330 million, we haven't increased the number of vouchers. Only one in five people who are eligible for those vouchers can actually get them. This would be you know, a, a very modest step in closing that. I mean, people throw around big numbers, but these are 10 year numbers, right? Uh, the estimate of really to close that gap would be about 50 billion a year. It's, and it's, it goes back to, you know, where do we want to spend money? Um, you know, I, I go often back to FDR's 1944 State of the Union address. We are still, you know, in the middle of a war. My father was still in Italy in the Air Force uh, hmm. at the time. And yet, you know, he said, now's the time to start planning for the future. And he basically outlined that, you know, decent housing should be an economic right. Um, and, you know, in many ways, the Biden administration's, you know, picking up that mantle and trying to, you know, advance it. Uh, but the really modest numbers uh, in terms of, you know, in terms of the needs, whether it's public housing, uh, whether it's vouchers, down payment assistance is important. Some of the construction of affordable housing through housing trust and, and low-income housing tax credits. In some sense, we're just scaling it back. Uh, to where we were in 1970. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think when President Biden proposed his Build Back Better agenda, you know, soon after uh, he got elected, there was about $500 billion over 10 years for housing related initiatives. Yeah. And of course, that got scaled down because the size of the package has been scaled down. Yeah. And now it's at $150 billion over 10 years. So you're right. You divide 150 by 10, you get, I don't know, 15 billion per annum in a two point in a $23 trillion economy that doesn't take you very far. Yeah. But you know, it's moving you down the path in the right direction, I suppose, generally speaking, but because it is a large part of it is focused on affordable rental supply, yeah. but you know, how far is it going to take you, you know, with that kind of, that kind of funding? Uh, that make that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I did have uh, two other questions. Uh, quick policy questions. One, the other one is around the, and this is a little bit more in the weeds for, I think some of our listeners, but, you know, I think important and, you know, clearly in your, you're down your, in the middle of your strike zone. And that works. I know that metaphor works for you because there you go. Yeah. Where's now tell me, where's that baseball coming from? Is that, you said it's 1983 World Series? 1983 World Series. Okay, I it was the, the Phillies against the Baltimore Orioles. Cal Ripken's only World Series ring came from that year. Oh. Uh, and the Phillies still had Tony Perez. Uh, if I'm a big Reds fan, as you know. So no longer had Pete Rose, but they had Tony Perez still on that team. You're a Nats fan now, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, hard not to be because they, yeah. they won, when was it, a year or two ago? Two, two three years two, ago. Two, three years ago, yeah. yeah. Two or three years ago now. Of course, Ryan is like a, uh, you know, the shameless Red Sox fan. I know that mm -hmm. I find that highly irritating. What about you, Ed? That feels well, like I, you know, I'm at, I'm at MIT, so I did get to Fenway oh, Park. That's right. Yeah, you got to remember. Yeah, yeah, it's right. yeah so it's uh, if I have to root for an American League team, I'll, I'll go with the uh, Red Sox. It's now. hard not to root for the Red Sox. Yeah. But, 
and cool. such a great it's a great stadium too mm -hmm. you know it is it definitely is yeah I, I i used to go there when my my uncle lived uh there when i was a kid i'd go in the bleachers there in the with the wall yeah I, yeah but but at least the boston braves uh won the world series Did, they won the world series boston braves oh, boston braves yeah mm -hmm. um so in talking about in the strike zone fha mm -hmm. uh at least on paper is doing pretty well and you know from a financial perspective you know the the insurance fund that backstops the fha uh is uh, uh according to the actuary you know uh, pretty fulsome you know i think it's eight percent kind of yeah eight percent uh of the uh, mortgage balance is outstanding six percent of that is already in the bank if you will there's yeah. already receipts that treasury has gotten and 2% sort of that 30 year net present value calculation. So it's doing yeah. quite well. It, you know, not to go in the weeds, but it, you know, that's kind of a capital is it capital kind of, that's the, the, the sort of there to it's, back. If you have losses, then in theory, this money would be set. If this was set up like a private you know, institution, but I guess the present value isn't quite right. It isn't, it's not exactly. Well, right. I mean, it, it's, yeah, you know, there's no backstop. It's the it's a government program, just like Social yeah. Security. Okay. Right. Uh, it has the eagle on it. It's full faith and credit. The yeah. insurance is good on the Ginny May securities. So really, that six percent that's already in the bank is the amount. This was a, conceived as a mutual type of uh, mortgage product. That six percent, you know, can also be thought of as how much has been overcharged given the actual path of the economy. Now, we could have gone down a different path, but uh, oh, you know, we we over the last uh, basically eight years, uh, we've overcharged by about six percent. Yeah, uh, yeah. I get. I guess then that was. There will be points in time when you undercharge then too, right? Because if you're in the downside of an economic cycle, you'll lose money. Yeah. So the idea is that you the. They want to keep the government, the treasury kind of whole, so to speak, through the on cycle. average, on average, through the cycle. So yeah, that's kind of the idea. Yeah, so absolutely. I'm holding, in a good time, I want to hold, I want to build that insurance fund, and in so I can draw that down in the bad time. Well, yes sure. and no. I mean, you why not? Or you can just it's going to why not let it fluctuate and just price what you think the average over the cycle is. The government doesn't need the money. Uh, you're basically pre-funding. You know, you're you're prefunding taxes for bad times, and it's the same as a tax. Yeah, you know, mathematically, it's the, absolutely the same as raising taxes uh, on middle class homeowners. Yeah, I'm not. I'm uh, just yeah. to be clear. I'm not. I'm not arguing this is the right way to, yeah. you know, run the railroad. I'm just saying that's kind of sort of the idea behind it. You know, it, it, well, not a great what? way of running the railroad. It's yeah. kind of sort of the idea. Well, I'm going to push back just a little because obviously. Okay. Uh, you know, in many ways, you know, as you get a lower number, if you're the head of FHA, you know, you get called in front of Congress and you get yelled at more. So really what we're doing now, you know, if you go back into the sort of what I call the physical space, we're charging homeowners and a lot of most of them first time home buyers, many of them communities of color. We're charging them more now so that in five years, the head of FHA uh, is less likely to get yelled at as much by Congress. Got it. Okay. It, it seems like that's a silly thing to do. The political economy of it makes it particularly silly. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, you should charge what you think, the, you know, the long-term cost is. That is the vision of the program. It's a mutual program. You know, in the old days, we would have rebated that 6%, you know, back to the actual homeowner because it was a rebate program. That is, you know, the, the, as your vintage paid down, if it collected more than uh, it paid out, you would, you would get a refund check. So, they, they've stopped that many years ago. But. Okay, so with this, with this conversation as a backdrop to the question, it sounds like, you know, right now the FHA is, in, is charging a insurance a premium, mm -hmm. you know, that's, uh, on, on, it's, that's embedded in the rate that's charged the borrower right. for this, to set this money aside for the fund. It feels like what you're arguing is we, we, should, we shouldn't be doing that. We should cut the insurance premium at this point because it's set too high yep. it's, uh, at, uh, and therefore should be lower. Absolutely. I mean, there are some discussions of whether how it should be targeted and the like upfront versus the overtime premium. Should you know low balance loans get or low income you know borrowers get a bigger break than others? So there are some policy questions that need to be discussed. But in aggregate, uh, there's no reason to be charging as much as they do. Let me let me ask you this question though. In the current context, with the lack of housing supply and given house prices are rising very quickly, a cut in the insurance premium is like effectively cutting the rate. It is cutting the rate. Mm -hmm. So that's going to increase demand even more. Right. Bump up against that lack of supply and jack up yeah. price. So are you really helping anybody by cutting the premium? Well, you're helping the you know net. You're helping the people who have the cheaper mortgages. What so? You know, I actually was asked this question the other day. Might you want to make policy to try to slow down house price appreciation? You, you should consider it. Uh, if you had a list of 20 things to do, and I'll go back to Ryan and Chris's list, is why are you doing quantitative easing uh, to you know, basically, you know, that would probably be number one on my list. Number 20 on my list would be the FHA premium. But why not start, you know, if we want to have this discussion, and we should, and this is what FSOC and the like was, you know, intended for the state, you know, um, the, the, the Dodd-Frank uh, Financial Stability Oversight Committee Board, whatever. Uh, you would go down that list and see which levers you would want, you know, to do. Changing FHA policy might be the 20th on the list, mm -hmm. and it has the, you know, the biggest impact on you know, low-income communities of color. You wouldn't start there. So you know, that's one observation. You know, two is by the time you actually get around to it, you know, the dynamic, you know, some of this is really two, three years out. We you know, announce the price you know, decrease for two years out, if that's what you're worried about. But I would not start, I understand the point and it's a legitimate point, but it should be a big part of a bigger discussion of should we you know, do things, whether it's LTV uh, restrictions as other countries do, whether it's you know, ending quantitative easing, whether it's the tax uh, policy of deductibility, there's a host of questions. I wouldn't start with FHA, Yeah, my two I, cents. I guess I, I wouldn't, just to push back a little bit, I, I don't think I'd argue I would use FHA as a as a counter cyclical tool. I wouldn't. You're right. I mean, I don't. Well, I wouldn't in think some of sense, that. that's what people are arguing for yeah, when they that, say don't that, do it. Mm, 
No, but I don't know that it helps anybody because if you buy into what I'm, you know, the logic of what I'm saying, rates go down, house prices go up. So the net payment for the borrower is still the same. You know, they're not getting anywhere with that. Is that not, they're not FHA, is, FHA is only 13% of the mortgage market. So, you know, so you're distributing, even if it's dollar for dollar in aggregate uh, gets capitalized. The people who get the lower rate are doing better than the people who don't get the lower rate. Okay. okay. I, well, we fair are, yeah, fair enough. You, fair you enough. have better models and can yeah, do no, the no, math. No. And you, you are, yeah. oh, I always like your insights, but my, my gut says you're still helping those people net. I just, I just wish there was a way to take that money and help build more homes. <laughs> well, we should. <laughs> That's like, please, can't we figure that one out? Yeah. Well, you know, maybe you, you know, it's interesting, FHA, a quarter, about a quarter of FHA is for new construction. You know, maybe we yeah. should lower it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Th this like is the type idea. of discussion we should have. Maybe we should yeah. target it uh, towards uh, promoting affordable building. Right. And, and, and instead of 25 basis points across the board, Maybe if you're doing a, you know, $150,000, $250,000 new construction, you get a full point off. I, I mean, like that. Maybe we, we should, I'm yeah. going to give you, I'm going to send you an email. Let's talk about that because maybe we can write yeah. something on that topic. That would be. Yeah. You can target where you, uh, where you put the money. Where you cut the, uh, the yeah. insurance premium. Hey, I, I did want to also final thing, because uh, I've kept you very long. We've kept you too long. On homelessness, I know you, you've been thinking yeah. about this pretty deeply, and obviously this is all tied up with all the things we've been talking about. This seems like a really big deal. Big, it's, I mean, it's, it's a big problem in many communities already, but it just feels like it's going to get worse before it gets better. Or am I just... Yeah, well, it's always been a problem. You know, we made some uh, significant impact of trying to end homelessness, especially among veterans uh, in some cities. Uh, there's no doubt as rents go up, you know, homelessness goes up uh, on that. And, you know, again, Build Back Better was trying to, you know, make sure that the most vulnerable people got additional vouchers. Uh, so, you know, that is of concern. Those are the people who get hit the hardest when uh, rents are increasing. And then the other thing, you know, that I think is, you know, important that we should reiterate is, you know, I always remind folks, these are, you know, these are our fellow citizens, um, sometimes, you know, very much down on their luck, but we need to provide services uh, for them. Uh, it, it almost goes to some of the zoning things that Chris talked about, you know, we, we need to make sure that there are, you know, there are decent uh, restrooms, you know, uh, outhouses, restrooms, showers, uh, bathing facilities uh, for these communities. I, you know, in some sense, until you completely get rid of it through a more robust voucher system, I do think you have to worry about providing uh, services. Uh, and yeah, uh, you can walk around uh, any town, you know, especially compared to Europe, it's very hard to find a restroom uh, when, when you're walking around. So I do think it's important uh, that we, you know, there's a certain human dignity on how we treat people who are, are homeless for a variety of reasons and not to stigmatize them uh, on that. Um, so, you know, it's important to think of the housing ladder uh, and to think uh, whether it's homelessness, uh, senior housing is another, you know, big issue. 
uh, uh, housing for people who ha have uh, disabilities. It's, it's a big country out there, and we it's not just that home ownership margin uh, that you know you and I have spent a lot of our careers focusing on. You have to think of the entire housing ladder out there, and I think homelessness, you know, needs additional resources. Build Back Better uh, will put uh, is focused a little bit on on that, and it definitely uh, is something we need to focus on. Yep, housing is a right. I you know, I think that makes. That's what Roosevelt said, and, and uh, I, I really encourage people to look at that uh, 1944 yeah, I didn't know uh, that economic rights. That. He yeah. calls it the second bill of rights um, on that. And uh, I, uh, you know, he has, uh, you know, sort of a uh, sort of a great quote that says, no matter how rich we are, we, you know, we, we need to look whether it's the one third, one quarter or one tenth of the most vulnerable. That's how we sort of should measure our progress, you know, not, not on GDP. It's, it's a great speech. That is, I'm going to have to go take a look at that. Well, uh, what a great man. Um, yeah. Well, thank you, Ed. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, and uh, giving us your, your oh. wisdom. Much appreciated. And I uh, hope we can have you back. Uh, you, 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 I'd love to have that conversation around climate change at some point. Uh, yeah. It sounds like a really interesting. Be glad to. We can uh, yeah, hope you. one day to do it in person in Philadelphia. Oh, and we go see a game, right? And I we like can go see the like game. You, yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Good. Well, well, thanks. Oh, you know, guys, have you noticed I haven't touted? Yeah, I was going to say, you forgot, I, I thought we were going to make it oh, all the way through without yeah. it. No. But here no. it comes. <laughs> At Mark Zandi. Hey, Ed, are you on Twitter? I am not. Ah, okay. I need. To, I mean, I have at times been on Twitter for the Gallup Center when I was at FHA, yeah. but not personally. Uh, not on Twitter. I've just gotten active in the last month or so. So I, I, I got my Twitter handle ten years ago. Never used it, and since we had this podcast, and yeah. you know, everyone was saying I'm just I'm acting old, and I got to get you know caught up on social media. And there's no way I'm getting on Facebook. Or Instagram, I said, okay, uh, I'll, I'll try the. I'm waiting for TikTok. Well, you uh, have to you know, hashtag, yeah. you have to hashtag Pete Rose when you uh, when you Twitter on this one. Okay. I, I want I want to know what your vast readership or uh, thinks whether Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. It's the most burning question uh, out there. I didn't realize that was still a question. Uh, people are still debating that one, huh? That's okay. still debate. Yeah. Okay. You, you can, you can, you can, uh, what do you think? Get, what is your view on that topic? I, I grew up in Cincinnati. Oh he yes, was, of course. He was an all-star in five positions. It's not a character mm -hmm. reference. It's a baseball yeah. reference. Yeah. It's yeah. a baseball. There are others think, out there too that need to be in the hall of fame, but, uh, what do you think, Ryan? Are you, are you on board with this? Yeah. Eventually Barry Bonds, Kurt Schilling, they all get in. And that, that was like the steroid era. Pete yeah, Rose should yeah. be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, you're right. I mean, good point. Yeah, good point. All right, Ed. Thanks a lot. Hey, happy holidays. Happy and holidays. Take care. Stay, stay, uh, stay safe. And I hope to shake your hand soon. Take care now. Mm -hmm.